it's been a long and exhausting year, uh, I think for pretty much everyone. And uh, while we have hope in a vaccine, things may not change for quite some time. Or things may change for the better and we still find ourselves exhausted and in need of rest at the end of next year. So I'd like to talk about rest and where it comes from and how to find it. There's an extended passage from uh, Jaber Crow, one of Wendell Berry's works of fiction, where he talks about uh, our need for rest and how we go about finding it or looking for it in forms of recreation that may not fully provide it. And he says, it might seem to you that living in the woods on a riverbank would remove you from the modern world. But on pretty weekends in the summer, this riverbank is the very verge of the modern world. On those weekends, the river is disquieted from morning to night by people resting from their work. This resting involves traveling at great speed. These people are in an emergency to relax. They long for the peace and quiet of the great outdoors. Their eyes are hungry for the scenes of nature. They go very fast in their boats. They stir the river like a spoon in a cup of coffee. They play their radios loud enough to hear above the noise of their motors. I watch and I wonder and I think. I think of the old slavery and of the way the economy has now improved, improved upon it. The new slavery has improved upon the old by giving the new slaves the illusion that they are free. The economy does not take people's freedom by force, which would be against its principles, for it is very humane. It buys their freedom, pays for it, and then persuades its money back again with shoddy goods and the promise of freedom. This is Wendell Berry describing the fictional town of Port William, but it sounds a bit like any town that we choose to live in. It sounds like Portland. Maybe racing boats around isn't your thing, but we're certainly racing around nonetheless from one thing to the next. Now, maybe we have been Christians long enough to realize that uh, this rest isn't a magical thing. It's not something that we receive in full by a spiritual conversion pro pro process, nor has our spiritual practice alleviated this sort of racing. And instead, maybe it's given us one more thing to be busy with. Church is just one more thing that is pestering us for attention. One more thing on our to-do list, longing for our devotion. So is deep spiritual rest just a pipe dream in our modern context? Maybe exhaustion is just inevitable in our society. And we, we're reduced to pining for simple times akin to Jaber Crow. For the good old days when people were less frantic, less insecure, less distracted. But whatever image we have for those simpler times, it, it probably never existed. The good old days weren't all that good and we probably romanticized them. Jesus is teaching us, in fact, about the need for rest in the first century, 
And he's commenting on a command that went back even further. Jesus, in our gospel reading, is having to teach people to rest. And our own experience shows us that there's nothing magical about Christianity that suddenly makes us able to slow down. But there is something to discover within Christianity that does make true rest at least possible. The Bible talks about this rest in terms of Sabbath, that it's expressed at least partially in a rhythm, a rhythm of life of devoting one full day to bodily, spiritually, emotional rest. We read in the fourth commandment that six days we are to work, but on the seventh day, we are to rest just as God did on the seventh day. Now imagine, we think that this sort of resting, this sort of rhythm is difficult in our modern world because of all the distractions and all of the demands on our time. But imagine how difficult it was, how anxiety inducing it was for agrarian people to stop working their fields for a whole day. How they would feel like they were getting farther and farther behind with each day of rest. But this rhythm, this practice is about more than just a day that is set aside to stop working. It's more than just giving our bodies 24 hours to recover, but it, it points to a need that we all have for a much deeper rest a much deeper rest than one day off or eight hours of sleep can ever deliver. We all know, don't we, that merely stopping work may not give us rest. We come back from vacation saying we need a rest from our vacation. And in fact, not working may actually raise our anxiety as it may have in an agrarian society because our work can be a way in which we try to control our world, by which we try to secure ourselves in a way that we try to control other people's opinions. You see, while working, we're accomplishing something, or at least we feel like we are. We're building our reputation. It's why we feel so devastated by a slight at work, by a bad review. It's not necessarily because the product downstream is not going to be as good or it might not come out as fast. It's that we take a hit to our reputation. While working, we're, we're climbing the ladder. We're establishing our identity. And so it's no wonder that one day of not working per week doesn't restore us or that a few vacations at the beach does not restore us. We don't have to be workaholics to be enslaved to work because work, what we actually do from Monday to Friday can be just a proxy for what we're really working for. Reputation, security, self-worth, prestige, comfort. Our work isn't just work, but it's how we determine who we are in the world. 
And so therefore it's really the burden that we can't ever just set aside or put down. Now we find Jesus in our gospel passage exposing this kind of reality in the scribes and the Pharisees who have found innumerable ways, it seems, to turn the gift of vocation, the gift of spirituality into a form of work, into a burden. Their piety had become a wedge between them and God rather than a way to love him and serve him in the world that he created. It became, as it were, an eternal occupation that they were unable to rest from, that they were unable to cease. And therefore, they couldn't let up when other people rested. They couldn't allow other people to have the permission to fully rest if they, the spiritual elite, were not unable to. And this is why they choose to lock horns with Jesus, among other things, over and over again, because he violates their pious sensibilities. He puts his finger upon their restless anxiety. They've taken God's gift of vocation, of restorative, of healing work, and they've made it a method of maintaining their membership in God's family. They've made Sabbath keeping a way of establishing their righteousness, of proving themselves and giving them the opportunity to judge others' practice. Maybe it's not Sabbath for you, but it's probably something. There's probably something that we have inherited through our practice of spirituality that began as a gift, that began as something restorative, that we've turned into a work, that we've turned into a duty, that we feel like we're losing ground spiritually if we don't perform, that God is maybe just a little bit less proud of us if we don't do the thing that we've come to now see as duty, as work. The scribes and Pharisees had made Sabbath keeping a way of establishing themselves before God, of maintaining the boundaries of their religion. This was their work underneath their work, the burden underneath their spirituality that they can never rest from. They can't rest from their work because they don't have rest for their souls. This is the kind of work, that work underneath the work, that the Sabbath was meant to liberate us from. Where we not only cease our work, but we seek rest for our spirits. Where God invites us into a weekly space to learn to still that inner murmur that's telling us that we are no one, that we are nobody, that we are getting nowhere without our work. Now, Jesus' disciples were condemned for something that we see as a bit strange, for reaping grain on the Sabbath. What's all the fuss about? Well, the fourth commandment is rather general. It's not all that specific. So the religious authorities had worked out over decades and centuries in exhaustive detail what was and what was not allowed on the Sabbath. They answered questions. They made the general very specific by 
delineating how far one can walk on the Sabbath without it being considered work, how much one can carry without it being considered work, whether you could swim or clap or climb a tree or dance on the Sabbath. And the answer was none of them. His disciples began to pick some heads of grain and rub them in their hands in order to eat the kernels. And this, friends, was considered working on the Sabbath. And as silly as that may seem to us, it was a serious accusation to Jesus and to his followers of a dereliction of spiritual duty. The list of proscription and prescription, they weren't just suggested practice. They weren't just proverbial wisdom, but they had become conflated over time with divine commandment. They were put on par with the fourth commandment itself. And so Jesus's followers aren't just violating holy tradition, but they are violating God's own authority. God's command, you see, instead of serving as, as a mirror to see their need for rest and provide a weekly space to cultivate this rest, God's command had been made into a ladder to climb into his approval. In verse six, Jesus answers their challenge with this startling claim, this heretical claim, unless it's true, that the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. What is he claiming here? He is claiming to have the right to interpret Sabbath for everyone. He is claiming to have the right to undermine all of those particulars that were somehow attached to, that somehow accreted onto that general guideline of the fourth commandment. And even beyond that, maybe most maybe most problematic. He is saying that he is the Lord of the command itself, that he is the Lord of God's authority and God's command. This is audacious. He is saying to the scribes and Pharisees that it is not their authority, that their authority is not equal to God's, but his is that he is the one who establishes the command's true intention. And beyond that, more than that, he is that to which the Sabbath is pointing to. He is the source of true and lasting rest, of deep rest. The Sabbath was always meant to be more than just a ritual, but it was a sign of possessing eternal rest, as well as a practice that enables us to experience that rest. Maybe you remember Chariots of Fire, the best picture of 1981. I probably shared this before because the whole movie kind of hinges upon this idea of Sabbath and the discussion of what it, what it meant. And was it still relevant in the lives of Christians? Harold Abrahams is this secular man, this gifted runner. He's the top of 
his field. He should be happy. But he says to his friend, Aubrey, you're brave, you're compassionate, you're kind. You are content, man. That is your secret, contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I've never known contentment. I'm ever in pursuit. And I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Eric Liddell is kind of the counterpoint to that idea. He's also a gifted runner. He's also at the top of his, his field, but he sees his work differently because he has a purpose beyond his running. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose for China. He feels called to the mission field. I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Running is his vocation, but it doesn't feel like work to him. It feels like a joy. It feels like something done to enhance his eternal rest. Abraham's can't not work. He's always striving. He can't quit the work that is beneath the work. Even when he achieves, even when he wins, it doesn't get him any closer to contentment. Liddell, however, when he discovers that the 100 meter in the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris, which is his best race, is going to be held on a Sunday, he decides to bow out. You see, he's liberated from the work underneath the work. He's liberated from having to establish his reputation, his prestige by running. Running simply brings him joy and he's, he happens to be good at it, but it's not the source of his eternal significance. Why are we so restless? Why is our rest even if it's long, even if it's on a Hawaiian beach, why is it not as restful as it should be? In the same way that we sleep for eight hours and are still tired, you can go through the motions of the Sabbath. You can take vacations. You can work less hours and still lack real rest. We can still be perpetually exhausted, even if we maintain the proverbial work-life balance. Because while we are working, we are still busy validating. We are still busy legitimizing. We are still busy proving ourselves. Work is the place that our society has collectively decided upon, chosen for us to work out our reason for being. And when we don't have the deeper rest that the Sabbath points to, we just keep on working. We keep on working on vacation. We keep on working on our days off. We keep on working at night before bed on the weekends. But Jesus, friends, says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is that to which the Sabbath points to. He is the Lord of rest. And you get to his rest in the same way that you get to him, not by following a simple routine but by waiting on him. He gets to you by taking all of your restlessness, all of your anxiety, all of your fear of insignificance, 
He takes all of this on his shoulders at the cross. And therefore, he's able to tell us in Matthew, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Sabbath is a weekly rhythm by which we seek to receive that rest, not to cultivate it ourselves, not to climb the ladder to it, but simply to rest, to stop long enough so that Jesus can give us rest. Harold Abrahams, though he is not content, at least he has the self-awareness to know that he's not. At least he has the self-awareness to know that even at the top of his field, that it is not contributing to his rest, but it is making him anxious. And so the question for us as we turn the corner into the new year, do we have the self-awareness to ask those questions about our own rhythms of life? Do we have the courage to ask questions of others, to ask questions of God, to say, what is wrong with me? Why can I not rest? Why can I not stop? Why has work become so intertwined with my sense of significance, my sense of belonging? Why am I so discombobulated when I have human failures and human errors at work? Jesus, you see, worked on our behalf so that we can stop our constant working for self-justification, for belonging, for meaning. Jesus did his work so that our work can be more than just a proxy for our pursuit of meaning, but an extension of a soul at rest. When our souls are at rest, then we can do our work, even the mundane parts of it, with joy because we see it fitting into this fabric of belonging and this fabric of creation that is broken but is beautiful. And even the small, tedious things, the the real work that we do at work can be connected to that larger rubric of meaning and bringing beauty into a marred world. We can say that we are not our jobs. We are not our careers. We are not our reputation. We are not our accomplishments or our failures. Instead, we were made in God's image, that we have essential dignity and we have value. We are not valued because of what we produce or what we buy but because we are created in love. Because God made us and then he rested. Then he was still. And he looked upon us, the last part of his creation and said, it is good. We we friends are made for more than 40 hours a week for 40 years. But God wants to grant us an eternal home of eternal rest. And receiving that takes practice. And this is part of that practice. And so let's invite him into our midst and into our souls that he would heal them and that he would give them rest. Would you pray with me? Father God, we pray that we would be a community that is attractive because it is a community at rest. It is a community that is stirred 
but is stirred by your calling into the world. It is stirred by beauty. It is stirred by injustice. It is stirred by inequities. It is stirred by the sickness that we see all around us, as well as the sickness that we see inside us, both physical and spiritual. Father, I pray that you would heal us. I pray that as we go back to work tomorrow or in the new year or whenever it might be, that we would go back to work with a greater desire for rest, with a greater desire for finding joy in the mundane as well as the grand things that we do and we create at work. And I pray that over time we would become a place of solace for others that would see something different, that would see a lack of anxiety, that would see a non-anxious presence in our cubicle, on our Zoom meetings, in our leadership, and the way that we go about interacting with our colleagues. I pray that we would be a place of rest and a place of safety, a place that people like Harold Abrahams might bring up their consternations about life and about work. Not that we have to have the answers, but that at least we can point to where we have found rest. And I pray that that would be ultimately in you. Jesus, would you be rest on our behalf? And even today, let us find the Sabbath rest that you say rest in you alone. We pray in your name. Amen.